Welcome to the Spirituality Out Loud podcast, where you'll hear real-life stories of people's unique spiritual journeys in their own words from their own viewpoints. Hosted by Leslie Seidel, relationship expert and spiritual mentor, who specializes in working with people on their relationships, from their romantic life to their work life and just plain life. Here's Leslie. Welcome back to another episode of the Spirituality Out Loud podcast. I am Leslie Seidel, relationship expert, and I just want to take a moment to say thank you to all who are listening and wanted to say if you are enjoying this podcast, please head on over to iTunes and subscribe and rate it. It goes a long way in spreading the word and helping others to find us. Today's episode, we have Indigo Ocean Dutton. She is the author of Being Bliss and Micro Habits for Major Happiness. She's also the principal consultant at Awakening Business Consulting, where she helps clients to tap into their intuitive guidance system and combine that clarity with practical business methodology and to develop profitable businesses that fulfill both personal and financial aims. The reason I asked her to be on our podcast is um, I'm, a, I'm part of a group called Awarepreneurs, and in it, uh, we talk about social justice, and we talk about how to be spiritual people and also be in business, and she just has consistently shown me this intelligence and this light and this fierce faith that... Um, I found inspiring and beautiful, and I am so very excited to have her on our podcast today. So let's get to it. Hi, Indigo. Welcome. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my utmost pleasure. I am so excited to hear your journey. You know, I don't, I've heard bits and pieces out there and the interwebs, and so I'm excited to hear more. Awesome. <laughs> So what we do here is start at the beginning and we just talk about what it was like for you growing up, what it was like spiritually, religiously, what was, what were you taught? What did you think about that? Kind of, what do you remember in the beginning growing up? Well, I come from a really religiously mixed family. It's changed over the years and also at any given point, some people in the family were this, that, or the other thing. Early, you know, the, a lot of the people in my family were Christian and different denominations of Christianity. And, you know, there, there are big differences between different types of Christianity. For the most part, different branches of Christianity. Also some Jehovah's Witnesses, which some count as Christian and some do not count as Christian. Um, also, Islam became a part of my family when I was still in elementary school. And then over the years, as I moved into adulthood and, and my siblings and I have all moved into adulthood, um, even more religions have come into the family. I think at, at this point, we've got kind of non-practicing Christian, Mormon, Buddhist, and I think there's one more. Yeah, I think that's it. Non-practicing Christian, Mormon, Buddhist. Oh, and then one other particular kind of Christian that I can't quite get the name of. It's something, actually, I don't want to say it wrong, but it's one of them that has this, like a, a newer denomination, but that is Christian. Interesting. So were these your 
their parents, your siblings, and like close relatives? Yeah, it's the household. So as a child, it's the household that I lived in. So that would be my great grandmother, my grandparents, my mother, um, for some period of time, my father, then my stepfather, um, and then my and my siblings. And then as the years have gone by, you know, as everyone's gotten older, the more of the diversity has come from my sisters and their families and their children. So growing up in a household with multi-generations and multi-faiths, how did that, yeah. how was, how was that? Like, how was that presented? How did you feel like, like, was it okay that each person had a different belief? Yeah, I think that it wasn't even really, and it wasn't even a thought to be an issue because everyone, not only did everyone have different traditions, but people were always changing their traditions. You know, <laughs> like I think they converted part of the family, like my great grandmother, grandmother and mother converted to Jehovah's Witness the year that I was born. So before that, the household had been, I think they had been Baptist. Uh, it just changed so many times. And there was a period they were Methodist, and then a bunch of them were Mormon. Um, you know, they just kept changing. So, And then my mother married a Muslim. And so when she married a Muslim, his faith came in and then he wanted my little sister, his daughter, raised Muslim. And that, you know, so I think that just like that whole idea in my family, the norm is that faith isn't something that you're just born into. And then that's the truth. And that's the one truth and the only truth. And like my family just doesn't think like that. I love this. This is, I mean, I haven't heard many people have that experience. And so I just, I love the fluidity of it. Yeah, I was definitely taught from a very young age that I got to choose my religion. And I started actively working on that when I was maybe around something around 12, around that age. I, was, I remember being at the town library, reading all the different religious books and, you know, trying to pick my religion, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, the amazing thing is that usually when people try to instill something like this, they're very much directive, right? They want you to do their thought process. And even mm -hmm. at 12, you were encouraged to seek, but not necessarily down any particular way. Yeah, I would, I would, I would rephrase that a little okay. bit, though. So, so what I've described to you is kind of what happened by default, because it, just how the personalities played out, just like how things played out. But it wasn't that anyone had a conscious understanding of this or intention around it. So like my mother, during the periods in which she was Jehovah's Witness, she really wanted me to be Jehovah's Witness. And when I was young enough that I couldn't make decisions for myself, I was forced to live as a Jehovah's Witness. It was just never true to me. Like I never believed it. And since there were other people in the family, in the household that were not Jehovah's Witnesses, I could regularly, re easily point at other possibilities, <laughs> right? I knew that this wasn't the whole truth, and I knew that it wasn't my truth, but she still wanted it to be my truth. Okay, so did the other people who had a different truth, were they also trying to tell you about their way? No, I think my mother felt like she had an obligation to raise us in the faith, because Jehovah's Witness is a very controlling religion. So they were putting pressure on her that she was responsible for us. Whereas, you know, the other religions, they were, you know, they're not um, evangelist religions. Now, the family did eventually become Mormon, and that is a, a more evangelist religion. But at, that, that didn't happen until I was like in my 30s. So 
um, growing, growing up, the only influence that was more, I would say, manipulative would be the Jehovah's Witness one. And all the others were people were just doing their thing and they were just an example to me of another way. So you, what I hear you saying is that you, you didn't feel called to the Jehovah's Witness, but you did want to seek something. Like you weren't interested in this topic. It wasn't like because that way didn't work, you were shutting down the whole conversation. Right. And I actually had a really close personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a child. Like long before I was thinking any of these thoughts, like when I was like, I can remember being like maybe eight or something like that and just sitting in my room when everybody was out doing something else, playing or studying or whatever. And I would just sit there by myself, just having conversations with Jesus Christ for hours at a time, you know, and it never occurred to me, you know, in my family, people talked about astrology. Like I'm pretty sure I knew my astrological sign, my sun sign before I even knew my address, (laughs) you know, Mm-hmm. And my and my grandfather, he had books on out of body experiences and Edgar Casey and all of this, and we had Ouija boards, you know. As a, as a, you know, it was just my family. There was like always this mystical openness, this mystical curiosity that was indulged throughout my family, it, which is interesting for people who are also deeply in like Mormon. You know, well, they didn't become Mormon until I was like thirty, though. Oh, okay, so. so. Jehovah's Witness. Uh, yeah, but Jehovah's Witness even, you know. Yeah, it, yeah I wouldn't, I yeah. Would, that would be frowned upon. Yeah, so it was, so, so this was the thing in my family, like they're always changing religion. And so I finally had a conversation with one of my sisters not too long ago. And I said, you know, I think I would sum up my family's relationship to religion like this. We like nice people. So wherever we move, we don't have a community there. And so the first group of nice people we meet, that's the religion that we take for a, until we move someplace else. And then we need to find the nice people there. But we just like nice people. So it was more of a function of a social um, yeah. fulfillment than a spiritual fulfillment. I think so. I think so. Like, I, they, like they wouldn't sum it up that way. <laughs> but when you look at the patterns and you look across the years, that's what was happening. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is your opinion, right? So we right. can have them on later and they can talk right. <laughs> their, their experience. So, but, so you said you sat and had conversations with Jesus. So did you feel spiritually, right? So we'll talk, we'll kind of separate the religion and the spiritualness. And do, do you feel that that was a spirit? You felt very spiritual in those connections. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I would say I was deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual, my entire life. Like I can, I, I don't have any memories that weren't very spiritually aware. And like that, that was normal to me, the idea that you would have a relationship with, with someone like Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. I, I um, did not grow up that way. And so for me, that just sounds like heaven. Like it sounds like a, it's just a really beautiful way to uh, knowing, right? Kind of um, an extra strength to have in the process of growing up. Well, I definitely am grateful that I did have that and that, you know, that I came from, you know, my family is also Native American. So, you know, there, there's a mixture of both African and Native American. So my great grandmother who was taking care of me as a child was full-blooded Cherokee. And my other grandmother who I didn't really know is full-blooded Blackfeet. 
So those were strong traditions that also influenced the family. And I think that that's part of why there was more of that sense of connection, that, that more spiritual connectedness, not just the more structured Christian religions. I think those two those were two things that were woven into the fabric of my family. Um, We couldn't just be the American version of Christianity, like, you know, the, the, the more European tradition of it, we couldn't be just that. And so even though my African ancestors who were descendants of slavery, they could be just that because that's how it had been taught to them. But for the native American parts, well, yes, Christianity was introduced to them too, but they had a deeper connection to the religion that of of their people that had been there already, right? And so there were there was more of it that kept that stayed integrated. So uh, I'm really curious about how that showed up. So was that talked about? And was it so? Was it talked about? I, I don't know much, right? Yeah. So was it? I mean, it was talked about in some ways, like not in the way that we're talking about it now. Just like their way of conceptualizing all of this is very different. Like you know, to use words like spirituality or religion, like they wouldn't use those words. Um, but like, you know, the, the, the talk about, you know, being, you know, being Cherokee or, you know, you know, the history, like when they would tell the stories of what had happened in the family, you know, it was intricately woven into that because that was just the fabric of their lives. <laughs> right. Um, and so their way of relating to things, their way of, of storying things, you know, I'll, 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 just to give you an example, right? So I, I'll have to tell you a little story. Sometimes it's hard to make a point without just telling the story and letting that answer it. So when my family talks about my great uncle dying, so he was also full-blooded Cherokee, they, 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 it's, it's a mystical story. And it, but it's, it's a factual story. It's a factual story that just includes the mysticism of it. So the way he died, he was old, you know, so he was in that age range where people do die. And he and his wife, they'd gotten to that point in the relationship where they were still very close, but they were like, they each wanted their own bedroom. So he had his bedroom. <laughs> she had her bedroom. And then there he had an adult daughter. Their daughter was maybe about 50 or so. And she would come over to have dinner with them every night. And then my great uncle, he would go to bed before the women would. And he was afraid of the dark. So he would go to sleep with the light on. And then his daughter would come in before she would leave to go back to her house. She would go in and she would turn off the light in his bedroom after he was asleep. Mm-hmm. And so this night he, for dinner, he's like, okay, I want you to make me my favorite foods, which were fish, collard greens, cornbread, and iced tea. That's his favorite food. So that's what his wife made for him. And then he said to his daughter, as he headed off to bed, he said, tonight, I want you to leave the light on because tonight I want to be able to see. Mm. And she said, okay. So he went into the bed and then the next morning when his wife got up, she saw that the light was still on in his room. And normally he was up by then and should have turned off the light himself, right? So she went in to check and he was lying in the bed dead. Now, in my family, this is told as a story of how he chose the night of his death and then waited for it and wanted to greet it with his eyes open. But in a tradition that doesn't have that concept of mysticism, it wouldn't be told like that, but it is a normal part of Native American traditions that, yes, you choose the time of your death. It's so interesting. It's a beautiful story, and it's so interesting. All of the messages we get 
in the way a story is told. Mm. Right? Like I, I don't, I don't know that I think about it. Right. Um, but I have two t- similar stories of my grandmother dying and my father dying and she just, she, my grandmother wouldn't pass. Like she just, she was in a hospital for six months and they would say, okay, now is the moment, now's the moment. And she would be in a coma and she would hear that I, this is my storyline, right? She would hear mm-hmm. them say she's about to die and she would pop her eyes open and she'd be like, hi. And this went on. <laughs> like five or six we are a deeply um, uh, stubborn people. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and this went on and it was really hard for my mother, right? And, and um, she kept getting this call. And so I went, I went one day and I sat with her and, and it was time. And I, she was lying there with her eyes closed the same way she had for days and days. And, and I just talked to her about how it's okay to go and how, I've got mom and I will take care of her daughter. And I just, I spent the whole day having that discussion with her just Mm. over and over again. And then she passed, Mm. you know, and, and I really hold it in like how my family is terrified of dying. It doesn't know, they don't hold something that's going to happen later. And so I imagine that would be really hard. Right. And so they just hold on for, (laughs) but it, you know, in my beliefs and how I hold it is like, yeah, like she finally had permission to just let yeah. that little piece go. And she could feel like it was her decision. Mm-hmm. Like you were in, you know, you were connecting with her in such an intimate and safe way mm-hmm. that she could let go. Whereas, you know, as long as it felt like, you know, <laughs> it was somebody else's idea, it was like, no, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's, that speaks volumes about me, my mother. <laughs> it just speaks volumes. So, yeah. So that's a. It's a real. And thank you for sharing that story and also holding this idea of of the how we talk about our lives really does hold this mysticism, right? It holds how we feel about our lives and and yeah. storytelling, right? It's the power of it. I'm humbled by it just by this one story. Yeah, I, I definitely believe in the power of stories and, and that stories teach at a level that, that you know, well, I'm thinking prose, but that's not the right word. Uh, what's the alternative to, to story? Like how we just normally speak, you know, theory, maybe you would say, you know, we can be eloquent in our theories and we can back up those theories with lots of facts and reasoning and logic. And that can be very convincing, but you can change someone's mind without changing them like that. Whereas a story, it gives us access to a deeper level of knowing, and then that can create actual change in the person, even if they couldn't explain it to anybody else except by repeating the story. And, and I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, the traditions of my ancestors, um, my African ancestors and my Native American ancestors, are the tradition is passed on with stories. You know, even though many of them did have written languages at a certain point, a much longer, going back much farther, is the oral tradition. And that continued on even after there was introduced a written tradition that the culture was passed on with stories. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it still is today in a different way. It's really interesting. This is one of my passions and 
have you ever studied fairy tales? A little bit. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I think I took one or two courses on them. This idea that a fairy tale is a story that's verbally told over and over again, and so that all of the personal details leave, but all that is left is what is true for the collective. Yeah. Right? The farmer's daughter yeah. and the prince. And so it's not Tom, it's not Sherry. It's, it's, it's what's true for the collective. And I, I pay a lot of attention to the stories we are today saying, right? Yeah. Watching like the wave of movies that come out, you know, and, and how there's an era where zombies were just zombies were everywhere. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. That's what I was thinking. And I was kind of like not wanting to go there. <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's so fascinating and you can, I can learn so much about my own unconscious about like what fairy tales I find attractive. Why am yeah. I on Luana? I'm totally obsessed with this storyline and it's beautifully told. But I mean, one of the things I look at, you know, they had uh, Sleeping Beauty. There was a couple of years ago, whatever, two of the same storylines, same movie came out and both of them the women said, I don't need your help. I will save you to the prince. Mm. And that changing in our consciousness, right? Mm. Um, uh, the vampires, the vampires back yeah. in the day, and they used to, you know, seduce you and take your blood. And back when no one, when, when our, we were sexually repressed and now we're mm. not, and now they're the chaste ones, right? And, anyway. All of that is a side note in the story of the power of the story and how we personally hold it. Yeah, yeah. You were seeking at age 12 yeah. and you were already having a personal and open dialogue with Jesus. How did, how did this shift over time? Well, it started becoming more and more mystical experiences by the time I was 15. Um, amplified during the period from when I was like 18 to maybe about 20. I mean, I started just spontaneously having experiences of like altered states of reality. Like what now I think in some cultures you would call them Satori experiences. So like temporary enlightenments where, you know, I could just all kinds of strange things would happen, <laughs> you know, or in other cultures, they would call them CDs. You know, I just had mystical powers and things like that, just temporarily. I think one time it was for just like uh, uh, maybe half an hour. And then the next time it was for like an afternoon. The next time it was for three days. And the next time it was for two weeks. Um, the final time was for almost a month. And, you know, so those things started happening. How was that for you? How was that held? And what was the story around that? For a lot of it, I didn't really understand it. Like, I still hadn't met the kind of people who could explain it to me for most of it. So I could tell something was happening. I mean, it was undeniable. I mean, it was just, you know, it was too extreme um, to be able to just kind of ignore it and pretend nothing was happening. But I couldn't explain it to myself and I couldn't explain it to anybody else. So, it was just something that happened, right? And sometimes it would start and sometimes it would stop and that was all there was to it. And then that final time I was older, that, that the time that was almost a month, I think I was like 30, 30 or 31. And uh, that time it, it was the first, it was the only time that I could directly link it specifically to something. 
like the others, I could say, well, maybe it was because of this, or maybe it was because of that, you know, and I, so I have ideas, but I don't really know. But this time I know I was at a, like a spiritual gathering and I won't mention the names of these teachers, but I was at a spiritual gathering and there was a table, an altar with some shoes on it. And I touched one of the shoes. And when I did, something ran up my finger, then it ran up my arm, then it entered my heart. And the next thing I knew, I was just like running across the floor, swinging my arms and hands with the craziest look on my face, just like out of my mind, like literally my mind was blown. And for weeks after that, I could heal people just by looking at them. I could communicate with trees. I would walk into a supermarket and the entire place would just hush. I mean, it was just like the most, it was like suddenly being like one of the the most ascended masters, right? Walking the earth. And it, it lasted almost a month, you know, so I would wait, I would go to bed and I would wake up and it would still be going on. <laughs> I, I mean, was this okay for you? Yeah. I mean, okay. So yeah. So the first few days of it were confusing, Yeah. but then I started being like, okay, so this is happening and I don't know what's going to happen next. And it was just like all an experience and it happened to be happening during a period of time where I was couch surfing because I was getting ready to, to leave the U.S. Um, for for a trip overseas. And so I'd given up my apartment. And so friends, different friends were letting me stay at their places. So every few days I was changing houses, changing cities even, um, just bouncing around the Bay Area. And so that also, it was perfect timing in a way because it kept exposing me. Like I couldn't settle into a routine, right? Mm -hmm. And so it kept it all fresh. Everything was a discovery. Mm -hmm. And so that went on until I got to this point where I, I started understanding it with my, my intellect started understanding it. Mm. And then my intellect liked it. Mm. It liked it and it wanted more. And so then suddenly, instead of these things just spontaneously happening within whatever situation I just happened to be in, and, and basically the enlightened mind shaping itself to how it touches that situation. Instead, I would wake up and I would think, okay, I want to heal people today. I'm going to put myself in the situation I was in the the first time that that's what arose so that that will arise again. See how the manipulation is there? Oh, the whole time you've been telling the story, I was like, I want that. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where I got it. We'll see you here because we're we're having an intellectual conversation from the beginning, right? I, I wasn't able to have that thought until my intellect was able to grasp what was happening. But as soon as it did, of course, what ego does is it then says, okay, well, I can do this better. (laughs) and of course it ended promptly in fact that restaurant that I went to to try to do that thing I I turned the whole place against me like I did something to them but they could feel the manipulation and I'm telling you like I really thought at one moment are these people going to actually physically get up from their tables and all attack me (laughs) like they they hated me with such an intensity that I actually did get up and leave the restaurant before eating that lesson, that lesson is a hard one, man. I hear yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that is a hard, hard lesson. Oh, wow. And it's, it, it sounds, what I hear is like a really intense, shortened version of kind of like the slow and steady spiritual path that I'm on or that other people's on or other people are on. I'm on. Let's talk about me. I've just like, trying to rest in that, trying to have these moments of trusting completely in the connection. 
and then immediately going, but how I got to do it. Here I go. You know, the attachment. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what's next after that? Well, so for a long time after that, I mean, after you have an experience that extreme, there's a part of you that's always chasing that experience, right? And so for a long time, I had other things going on. I mean, I did have to go overseas not long after that. And I I was in uh, Bali for about a year. And that's a very spiritual place. So I had all kinds of spiritual things happening, you know, just all kinds of miraculous things, really. Um, that were that became normal like that ha- living a miraculous life became normal to me and you know if I would go through a period of more than a month where nothing happened that could be you know considered a miracle I would be like oh I'm off my game I need to meditate more <laughs> um, and I started channeling for you know before that I could channel I could do automatic writing and I and also when I dance I, I could do trance dance very easily um, but while I was in Bali, um, I strengthened those two abilities also, but I also learned to be able to verbally channel, which had been elusive for me uh, before that. And I think that that just all of that and, you know, coming into closer communion with nature, being in a place where, you know, you talk about my Native American family traditions being able to hold this alternate way of looking at reality. I mean, the Balinese culture holds it even more, like it's, it's still intact, right? Yes. Of course, this was many years ago. This was almost 20 years ago. So I don't know if it's still like that now. Like anyone who's gone there more recently, I, I don't know what you would come back saying. But at that time, anyway, it was definitely like, <laughs> you know, there were prayers going on all the time. If I had a household helper, she would be sure to include my house when she would go around blessing places. I mean, it was like really deeply integrated into everyday life that of course all of life is spiritual. And of course we're having the communication between spirit realm and physical realm is always going on. Of course. Yeah. I've been there recently and yes, it is. Yeah. So much so that when you, when I asked them about it, they just thought like, what do you, I don't understand what you're right. (laughs) It's like saying, how is it that the sun makes your skin warm? I I don't know how to explain that to you. They they just were like, it just is. And we're just like, and I would be like, maybe they're spiritual. Maybe like I couldn't figure out. I was like, I see all the evidence. But every time I asked, they were just like, Yes, little girl. Like it was so not well, it's because there's no division. There's no concept of spiritual or not spiritual or religious. Like that's just not a concept. It's just life. So now you are channeling. Now, but it sounds like you've been channeling in various different ways. But in different ways. And and there's a big difference when you can start verbally channeling in, in a tradition in, in, in a culture like ours that is so focused on, I mean, you know, you didn't ask me to write an article for your blog, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm not dancing at an event at your house. And that's how you're conveying this to your audience. Like we're having a conversation. And this is how we found we can most effectively convey ideas to people who are taking it in, right, who are listening in this case. And that ability to be able to bring through, in a way, it's new knowledge, mm-hmm. bring that, cross that over from spirit realm into physical realm for the first time, to be able to do that in this form. And if we dropped into a different space, like we could be having that conversation right now. And that's something that I didn't have the capacity for before. And so getting that opened up a lot of it just opened up a lot. What is it like for you today? I don't know how old you are. I don't know how long ago that, well, 20 years ago that you were. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm 50 now. Yeah. Um, about, about to be 51 pretty soon. 
Um, yeah, so today I would say that I'm very fortunate that I've been able to structure my life. I, I call myself a nun without, uh, without a havoc. <laughs> or and what do they call them? Not havoc, that's not right. Habit. Habit. Yeah, okay, and the community of nuns around. Like I'm basically a nun without a club. So I don't have a club uniform. I don't have fellow club mates. <laughs> I'm just doing my own thing. But I do really live like a nun. And I, you know, I am steeped in a spiritual experience of life all the time. So, you know, when I became a business consultant, well, at first, of course, I just had to learn how to be a good business consultant. That was just like my job, right? But then over the years, like, at, you know, once I had my own firm and then I started allowing more of who I am to integrate into the work, it naturally evolved into my using my channeling within business consulting. And you would think, well, those two things don't go together. But it's like, for me, anything that I do long enough to get to a level with it where I can digest it, mm -hmm. it is a part of my spiritual life because that's just life. Mm -hmm. Amen. That is uh, one of the reasons I have this, this I, I started this podcast because that's how it is for me, right? Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's how I make decisions, micro and macro, right? And, and so I love that this is, so when you channel with your clients, uh, is it I'm going to now channel? Is it we're meeting and then that just seems to come forward? I mean, we do talk about It can about be that. either. It can be either. Um, sometimes, like, or sometimes like early on in working with someone, I'll really deliberately bring that into the space because I don't want to lock down the idea of what it is we're doing, what we're trying to achieve. I don't want to lock that down without spirit's input on that. But then once we have that kind of clarity, okay, this is what we're about here. Like, this is what's up. <laughs> then it's like, we're just getting it done. Like now there's just like, there are things that one needs to know about how stuff works in this world and we just need to get it done. But even during that phase uh, of the projects, I still, sometimes I feel something's coming through. Like we might be having a conversation and this is what we're talking about. And I just keep feeling this nagging feeling like, we're missing something or something else needs to be said and I can't access it right now. And so I'll just ask the client, like, can we stop for a moment and can we just do a little meditation together? Cause I think something wants to come through and you know, if they're working with me, they, they're, you know, generally going to say yes to that or they wouldn't be working with me in the first place. <laughs> uh, they're like, Oh, you're too weird for me, lady. <laughs> so then we do. And then something comes through. And usually when that happens, it's like, it's a big deal. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Right. Something from your higher self, something, I mean, what is it? What yeah. do you, how do you define that if you do define it? Well, so I've defined it differently over the years and it's all just conjecture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure that our human understanding of what's going on at that level is so many degrees away from what's <laughs> actually going on. That it's like a metaphor built on a metaphor, you know, wrapped in a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> drawn but, by my three-year-old uh-huh right right exactly um but you know i i when i first started working with channeling before the business consulting i was just like just channeling for people i would channel ideas and energy and and things like that um and i would always make sure that they didn't ask me the question i would have them hold the question but not speak it and that was my way of making sure that my intellect couldn't possibly take hold of the situation and that was what i had learned from that 
Satori experience because this all came after that experience. But I learned from that, like how my ego would take hold of things. So I intentionally structured it in a way that I couldn't. Then I always would think of it as I'm connecting with the client's higher self and I'm bringing their higher self and their angels and guides through in a way that they don't know how to access it yet, right? And so part of how I would always leave it is, okay, so we've done this together today, but this is how you can now connect with them on your own after this. And so everything was meant to be this one session thing, like where this, they would get this healing and they would get this information and they would get access to this connection. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very powerful, very effective. I was broke, of course, because that's no way to run a business. <laughs> My clients were very happy. And then, um, so that was the way I looked at it. But then over the years, as it's transitioned and it it became a part of other things, not something by itself, you know, I don't do those sessions where that's all that's happening. I don't present myself as a channel as what I do for work or anything. So as it's just become um, a skill that's a part of other things that I do, I don't know. I don't any longer quite feel like that's accurate. I don't any longer quite feel like I'm just connecting with their guides. I think that I have my own guides and my guides are guiding me through the work that I'm doing. And we're kind of on a team together and we're, we're doing something in this world. And so the people who present themselves to work with me, they want to be a part of that mission too. And, and there's a way that their mission overlaps with my mission. So when we come into the space together, they come with their guys. I come with my guys and everybody has a party. <laughs> it, it is so interesting to me to do this podcast and to meet these people. And as I meet and as I meet it just over and over again, I'm filled with like my, my being is saying yes to everything you're saying. Yeah. And it, it is so, um, it is beautiful, you know, to hear and to know and to bring this idea you're doing it anyway. Your spirit is working in your work anyway. So let's just acknowledge it and consciously bring it forward. Yes, exactly. Let's stop pretending. Like that, my motto for 2017 has been no more pretending. Yes. Yes. I, oh man, I, I did this work in mergers and acquisitions and what uh, they were paying me to do and what I was actually doing, what I was doing was I would walk in and deal with the energy, right? One company was buying another company and both of them were terrified and neither of them were admitting it. And they would say, this is what we need to do. And I would say, yeah, but this is what we're actually doing. And so I was really good at it because they got it addressed, the thing Mm -hmm. that they needed addressed, but I got tired of pretending right? Mm -hmm. Let's just all agree that that's what's happening here and talk about it openly. And it was so, you know, so thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for showing up to it consistently over such a long time. And I think that you did it for your own personal and, you know, but the reality of it is, is you made a lot of choices that have brought you to this place that is bringing something beautiful in the world that is helping at least me oh well thank you thank you you're welcome hold on hold on so um we are almost done here today is our time but i'm i might want to have you back i can talk to you for hours (laughs) so thank you indigo for your time and your space 
And I really, I deeply honor you um, showing up in this way. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. So if you are interested in her work, if you are curious about what she does and you are feeling called to find her, all of her information will be in the liner notes um, and, uh, and should be on iTunes and everywhere that you're listening. So I encourage you to reach out to Indigo if you feel so called. And um, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode of Spirituality Out Loud. Be sure to rate us, review us, and like us on Facebook, and share us with your friends.